Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Hey, I can tell... Oh, here we go. The 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 fifth column. Yeah, I think that's fine, Matt. That's the one thing that we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk about is the intra uh, Central American hatreds, which I'm always fascinated. This by. This was literally. Are we already starting badly? This we, we Camille list, yeah, uh, thing. Uh, no, one of the my very favorite thing about uh, Gustavo's Ask a Mexican column was um, just the hatred for Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> It was overstated. It was, it was overstated. <laughs> You're going to get canceled when they come back for that shit. Like all of these stuff was old columns. Oh, all right. Well, let's uh, yes, start now, Matt. Yep. And I won't do the greetings thing. Um, I think everybody knows they're listening to the Fifth Column podcast because they've clicked on it. No surprise there. You're not channel surfing. Uh, Camille Foster has gotten his second Pfizer vaccine shot today or yesterday, actually, last night, and it knocked him out. Yeah. And uh, or so he says, and he called us and said, uh, said, you know, I can't do it. And I'm like, well, for once, you actually have a reasonable excuse. So yeah. uh, he's not here, but uh, Even we wish him well. was was kind of slurry. It was know? a slurry text, wasn't it? Yeah, it I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, I did, but I got something about a shot and that he didn't feel good or whatever. So he said, we'll do this and we'll get somebody in, uh, else to sit in for you. And uh, Camille is not black, as he so often says. Yes. But we are people who uh, value diversity. And we wanted to get somebody in uh, to replace Camille who could fulfill yep. that uh, diverse seat. Because, you know, we use yeah. that word in that way now. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. The diverse seat on the fifth column tonight. Matt, an old friend of yours, isn't it? Yeah. We almost, well, we did work together, but we almost really worked together. Yeah. Why don't, you, why don't you give Gustavo the introduction that he deserves? You guys are old pals. Gustavo Ariano, my God, one of the very best writers in the country, certainly in Southern California, former editor in chief of OC Weekly. He's got a brand spanking new podcast. They let you podcast, they let anyone podcast over the say, I listen to it. It's great. It's good. Like it a lot. Uh, uh, he wrote the Ask a Mexican column for a decade <laughs> yeah, so at the OC Weekly. It was syndicated. That reminded right. me, by the way, when I was looking at uh, Gustavo's very impressive credentials, that the time that an older person in my family was, um, oh, no. you know, kind of, well, no, they, they understood that the times had changed. They understood that language was different. You couldn't use particular words anymore. And were being especially sensitive in um, whispered the word Mexican and said, you know, I think he's Mexican. And I'm like, no, it's a country. <laughs> It's like a real, it's a country oh, with people. It's, it's on passports. And they're like, well, I don't know. It could be. I don't know if that's offensive. I'm like, it's the name of the fucking country. How could it be offensive? Uh, who knows? Well, let's see. Let's wait. Gustavo. Uh, yeah, no, it, 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 there's still parts where still to this day, the word Mexican is a slur. People do. Uh, uh, Rudy Acuna, the pioneering Chicano study studies scholar basically the man who invented chicano studies he wrote a book called anything but mexican this is in the early <laughs> in the mid 90s uh just talking about this phenomenon of people trying to pass themselves off as anything but mexican you and then you talk specifically about mexicans we have been let's see 
We've been considered white. We've been considered mongrels, mestizos, Spanish, Spanish Americans, Mexican Americans, Hispanics, Latino, and now, of course, Latinx. Very rarely do people (laughs) want to be identified as Mexican. And, you know, that's all colonialism. We could get into that. But yeah, no, I proudly call myself a Mexican. A Mexican with glasses, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Are you uh, are you Latinx? (laughs) I am not Latinx. You don't embrace. I was in uh, in uh, uh, Miami. And I was shooting something with a bunch of Cubans who are the the pro Biden Cubans, and oh you know they're all very progressive, Russell. and uh, and and I well you know very progressive for Cubans, and I mentioned the Latinx thing, and everyone was like, no, please, no, that doesn't like in Spanish how ridiculous it sounds, and they all went off on this jag about how dumb it was, and I realized it was just people on Twitter that that say Latinx. No, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> this is what people don't realize is that Latinx is a new Latino is a new Hispanic, is a new Chicano. You have these words because, and this is what I actually, even though I don't embrace the term Latinx, I love the term Latinx in this sense that it just fucks with people. People are like, oh, you can't call yourself Latinx. It's a disgrace to the English language or the Spanish language, whatever. That's the exact same shit that people said about Chicano. And Chicano, you know, never really blew up the way it did, but it's the exact same thing people say about Hispanic. It's language. Language evolves. People are going to call themselves whatever suits them. But for me, it's like, look, if you want me to call you Latinx, cool, I'll call you that. Auto embrace it for people to expect everyone to embrace it is presumptuous. And then for people to call folks who do not call themselves Latinx, you know, homophobic or whatever, that's preposterous. That's the problem that I have. And and again, same thing with Chicano. If you didn't identify, identify yourself as Chicano in the 60s and 70s, oh, you're obviously a, t- a Tio Taco, which is, of course, a Mexican version of an <laughs> Uncle Tom, a Tio Taco. And Tio Taco? And is that yeah. real? Oh, yeah. That was oh, a yeah. thing. Tio Can Taco. you explain the etymology of Tio Taco? <laughs> well, again, you have Uncle Tom, uh, the notorious, uh, you know, yeah. uh, well, character, in, uh, of course, in, uh, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin is right there. And then used against uh, black folks who are supposedly sellouts. So in the 60s, you had that same idea, you know, Uncle Tio. And then you're like, well, you can't call him Tomas because Tio Tomas, like, it actually, we yeah. have a lot of Tio Tomases out there. So it's like. What could be more insulting? Remember, this is the 1960s. The hard shell taco was rising across the United States. Oh. So this is before tacos were cool. So to call you a tío taco is being that you're like as much of a sellout as you possibly can. Wow. And so is, the that, hard shell is that still supplies? used? Not really. I mean, now can you're just... Can we bring can- it back? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be cool, right? Now, now you're just canceled or they call you, you know, the usual like, oh, no, no. The, the, the new tío taco, but this is a great term. Chicanosaurus. Oh. Oh. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one, right? That's a Chicanosaurus. A portmanteau of Chicano and dinosaur. Just you're behind yeah. the times. You only fight for what's yours and that's that. But that's a really cool term, a Chicanosaurus. Does that have a, a like a, a, a redolence of, you know, you were there in the 70s, but you're stuck in the 70s. Yeah, that's exactly. Right? You're you're literally yeah. extinct. You're, you're from another era. Get away, you know. Go away, make room for the new people. That's let us move in, and it's a it's a great term, and, and it, it's an it's used as an insult. But a lot of people, when they hear, it, they're like, "I kind of like Chicanosaurus. I'm gonna embrace it. Cool. Why not?" <laughs> yeah. Chicanosaurus. So your broader, uh, older fa- family, uh, uh, uncles and aunts, and 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 whatnot, um, uh, Latinx, Chicanosaurus, or uh, or just shaking their head what the fuck are you people even talking well you about? see that's what my family is remember i'm the child of immigrants i grew up working class my all my aunts and uncles most of them are still alive they're now in their you know late 60s early 70s most of them came here and documented they came and just worked their ass off they have no time for names or whatnot they have no idea what latinx is but you know they're polite people sort of like eh, 
If you want to call yourself, yeah. why not? Go for it. But they're not in a trillion years would they ever say, yo soy Latinx. No, they're not going to say that. So, <laughs> yo soy Mexicano, Mexicana. That's what they are, you know? Latinx. That the, uh, sounds like a relief pitcher. I think one of the the uh, interesting divides in American journalism and discussion in general, uh, regardless of uh, Latin echoes, um, is this gigantic divide, be class divide um, in newsrooms. Um, you know, it could be Moynihan's evil Mick people. Or it could be anybody. <laughs> Don't forget the WAPs. Like, yeah. Don't never. I'm, well, I'm he's tough. half wop too. He's he's <laughs> screwed. Uh, he's he's got everything bad all mixed. You'd think up. I'd be getting uh, job offers everywhere, Matt, because yeah. I'm both a Mick and a wop, uh, and uh, come from a working class background. You, I mean, but, but like, no, uh, it's not happening. Uh, a thing I've always uh, noticed in your work, Gustavo, is that you uh, have a visceral connection to people who work for a living and the priorities, including a work ethic. Um, uh, a lot of people don't understand how you are so productive. And part of it is that you fucking work. No, um, what, what I do isn't work. What, me talking to uh, two gabachos is work? Come on, how the fuck is that work, you know? I don't know what gabachos is, but I know it's awesome. I know it's just flattering. It, it's what it's what Mexicans call gringos. You know what a gringo Hot is. Hot white guys. That's, yeah, that's not it. But like... Mm-hmm. I know what work is. My What my mom did was work. She started working in the garlic fields of Gilroy at nine years old, ended up becoming a teamster because she packed uh, tomatoes in Fullerton. My dad worked. He was a truck driver. I remember getting up when I was maybe 10 years old every summer, every day. We He'd be, you know, uh, Matt, will, Matt will get this more than you, Michael, but, you know, we would go to the port right there, Wilmington, San Pedro, uh, the port of Long Beach. He'd sneak me in and my job, he would drive flatbed trucks. So my job was to throw the strap over, uh, you you know, about six or seven tracks on a long bed, get the winch and just get up at 3 a.m. in the morning. That is work. Uh, writing, trust me, I, I love this job and I appreciate people who do write. But at the end, we're writing. We're using our mind. And that's important to do as well. But it's not what our parents did. It's not what my aunts and uncles did. And so for me to... I, that's always given me perspective. It's like, no matter what I do, if I ever feel... Like, I'll give you a quick example. A friend of mine, um, he once told me, he's like, what do you do when you have writer's block? And I'm like, dude, writer's block is for white people. You think Mexicans like us who snuck in no. into this fucking so, industry can- Such can, a lazy white person. Yeah, can, can you really think we could afford to have writer's block? Hell no. And I said, don't ever forget what we do is a privilege. What our parents did to sacrifice, that was work. What we're doing is fucking fun. Uh, so, so that's the thing that, that, that interests me. I mean, cause it's a different, I mean, Southern California, Matt grew up in a culture of seeing this, uh, around him. And it's just kind of the, the rhythm of life. But, you know, being working class and growing up in, you know, Massachusetts is one thing. But how does one become Gustavo of being, you know, not only working class, but the son of undocumented immigrants who are doing like actual, Hard working class labor, like being in Gilroy, uh, the the garlic capital of America, picking garlic, driving flatbed trucks, you know, on, you know, some nerves, I presume, at at, at all time about their status. And you end up becoming a newspaper editor, <laughs> a journalist, a podcast host, a, an author of a couple of books now. I mean, how does that happen? I, by not following what my dad wanted for me, because my mom, she, she, she actually was legal. She came here legally because my grandmother was an anchor baby. She was born in Arizona during the Mexican revolution. So that gave her American citizenship. So when they came up in the sixties, you know, 
Come on in. Simple as yeah. that. My dad was the one who came to, the tr- to this country, the trunk of a Chevy, driven by a hippie chick from Huntington Beach in 1969. <laughs> dropping <laughs> dropping that them off. That might be a movie that you saw. Oh, dude. Oh, well, <laughs> and, and it's, but here's the thing. Like, now when we talk about the... And I think I might have... I know I definitely have mentioned it in reason, it, one way or another, but... Now what's on the border is complete misery. It is complete misery. And it sucks because when it wasn't, when you didn't have this draconian shutdown and all that shit, sneaking into the country was fun. You get my dad and my uncles together. Oh, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, there was a time when, (laughs) you know, you cut the hole through the fence and you cut yourself with a big gash. And oh, yeah, this is the generation, the 60s and 70s. To this day, my dad still calls himself a mojado. A wetback, and they embraced that term with pride. There was, I mean, you see in Mexican culture in the '60s and '70s, you have songs there for crying out loud, "Los Alegres de Teran, this pioneering uh, conjunto norteño group. That's the one that sounds like German polka with the accordion. They did a song called "Viva Vi, Viva los Mojados," "Long Live the Wetbacks," and the whole th- the whole thrust of the song is that all wetbacks should come into the United States, get married to a white chick, get the green card, then divorce her. <laughs> mm, yeah. That, I'm trying to figure out song. I'm trying to figure out who should cancel that song. If it's the <laughs> uh, Mexicans, it's, white it's people, Karen. who? Well, Karen. Again, you can never, you cannot record that song today. But Los Alegres de Teran did it. Los Tigres del Norte, the most famous Norteño group of all time, did it. There was a pride to that because that this was a time where the United States was finally freaking out about you know migration or what. Well, really, like, oh, we're gonna shut them down. The Mexicans are like, fuck you. You think you're gonna close down the border? No. You're gonna kick us out? No. We're gonna come back in. It's fu- it's it's a different scenario today, but like, so it was that sort of sense of like, dude, like you think you have it hard? You don't have it hard. I had it hard. You know, my, my parents talking to me and just getting that sense. And so what my dad wanted me to do, he wanted me to be a truck driver and not just be a truck driver. His goal was for us to uh, create a, you know, truck driving firm together. And that's a laudable goal, but look at me. I'm a nerd. I Mm. love, I mean, you see behind me, I'm completely covered in books and my dad never understood it growing up. He, he always loved me. So he never said, Oh, you can't read books. But for him, it's like, well, how, how is reading books got to pay for anything? And you know, it, I don't know. So how did I get to where I was today? It's a super long story, but just to shorten it, I probably the strangest, um, honor I ever got in my life. I was voted most likely to succeed at Anaheim high school, even though my GPA was like 2.4, even though I thought all the ASB uh, students were dumbasses and all the band geeks were band geeks. I did, but people knew people saw something in me. Okay. Gustavo, or back then they called me Gus. And the only people who call me Gus are people who knew me in high school. Anyone else? I, I get mad at them, but yep. it's like, Gus is going to do things. And we don't know what, but he's going to do things. And well, here I am. There you go. I want to point out that uh, I snuck into the country uh, from south of the border uh, illegally in 1983 or 1984 uh, because I'd gone on a camping trip with this girl I had a crush on and and her Vietnam vet, like a PTSD dad and uh, mom uh, and or stepdad mom and went down and like we were uh, we were right there near the terrifying uh, road signs north of San Diego of like, you know, the, be careful. There are like children with, with ponytails sprinting (laughs) across the five lane highway on the five. Uh, Please don't run them over unless, you know, you really mean to, these are horrible things. Um, So we were right on there. I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't bring any IDs. Is that a problem? Um, Of course, this is back in the eighties when it kind of, you didn't have to bring ID. Um, In fact, that's uh, like a post nine 11 thing that you you even need to, 
show a passport at all in between. But I didn't have any kind of ID. And the Vietnam vet was really uh, pissed off at me. Um, it wasn't ever considered a problem going into Mexico because, of course, they just want everybody to come down and yeah. waste money. Um, but going north, I, I sure did hide under like a like a burlap sack of whatever the hell and like terrified in the long wait uh, from Tijuana. Uh, the big the big change in, in all that came, I think it was in the 90s, Gustavo, when they actually built a wall. Like yep. that, the people talk about the wall, the, the walls, a lot of it came under Democrats, uh, came in the nineties and it came in Tijuana first. It was yeah, like an operation gatekeeper second. under Clinton. Yep. And, uh, and that really changed everything. That's what, from there you get coyotes from there. You get people who are like, Oh shit, we have to go through the really bad parts of the desert instead of going in between these two, you know, million plus metropolises there. And that, completely changed the back and forth dynamic between the two countries. Gustav, let me ask you this, because, I mean, you obviously know a lot about this. I mean, you you named the Clinton uh, <laughs> plan off the top of your head. If you think back, right, and it seems like every president of either party, I mean, we think back of Obama, and we, at the time, it was like Obama's outpacing everybody for deportations yeah. um, at the time. And look back, and Bill Clinton, you know, hawkish uh, on immigration, too. And then actually look back and see Reagan uh, had the amnesty, and George W. Bush was actually kind of a softie on immigration, and now has just done a book of, like, portraits of immigrants, yeah. um, which is kind of interesting. But, like, it's it strikes me that there's really no kind of party loyalty here to their voters who are pro-immigration or anti-immigration. It just seems that they're all kind of on the anti-side. It seems like there's essentially never until been recently. a president until, re yeah, until recently that is like, okay, we have to change this regime and change it in a way that is actually more humane to people trying to come across the border rather yeah. than, uh, you know, shutting it down totally. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, for crying out loud, Obama was a deporter in chief and, and, and Democrats, white Democrats got so pissed off at like, you know, uh, like uh, undocumented kids. These were like students, uh, you know, pe people came to this kind of the dreamers, the so-called dreamers. They don't call themselves dreamers anymore, by the way. That's politically incorrect, but that's a whole other conversation. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. You, uh, dreamers has not I been PC since like. Gosh, 2012 or something. Oh, yeah, no, totally. I shouldn't but have done that piece about dreamers. <laughs> that's, 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 a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. But no, they were calling out Obama. They're saying, look, just because you're a fucking Democrat, we know what you're doing. And the, the white Democrats in part, they're like, oh, you can't you can't criticize the black president. You can't criticize our president. And the, and the dreamers like, like, fuck, I can't. And so they would call them out. Same thing with Clinton. Like, you know, same thing with Clinton. Same thing. Jimmy Carter, I know, had his things as well. All of them. It's it's weird how it like with Reagan. This is this is what I keep telling my Republican friends. It's like you should have followed what Reagan said. And then Reagan, yeah, he said, you know, within every Mexican secretly lies a Republican or something like that. Yeah. But he was true. He was absolutely true. And he worked towards something. You know, he worked towards an amnesty, I think, granted at the end for three million people. W, I always told now my Democratic friends, like, you cannot knee jerk hate someone a republican because of their party w is going to be your best ever bet for any amnesty because the republicans are in power he's in power i get it you don't like them for a b and c and you don't like republicans and you definitely don't like the iraq war but you better fucking pray that he does something with amnesty nothing happened and that was of course sunk by his own party more than anything yeah. but still and, and if the republicans didn't keep shooting themselves in the foot then you'd have way more, uh, more, way more Latino Republicans because the Democrats really haven't done shit. The Democrats have the reason there's so many Latino Democrats. They've kind of, you know, uh, the Democrats kind of stumbled into Latinos who were looking for someone because they they couldn't stand the racism of the Republican Party, and here we are.
Uh, let me add something quick here, Matt. It's just that because uh, I can plug something. I have a a special that's airing tomorrow night uh, on Vice. I I have to look at what time nine o'clock or something. I should probably get We're that recording. down. We're recording um, this on Wednesday night. Yeah, it'll be on Thursday, and it'll be online. I think. Um, but that was me in Texas, as as regular listeners know, um, in the the border too. Uh, about the future of the Republican Party. And one of the things that I noticed, Gustavo, was in the counties that went, you know, you know, 80 percent, 90 percent for Hillary Clinton and then Joe Biden won. But by a very narrow margin, um, it was the biggest shift actually in the country was in Stark County. <laughs> um, and now, look, people say it's a small county, 18,000 people voted or whatever. It's still meaningful. And when I went around there, the, it, it really and I knew this intellectually. I knew to never do this, to never say that there was something called Latino or something called Hispanic, because it is so much variation in in different cultures and yep. in, in political. I mean, you go to Southern Flo- uh, Florida, Miami, and stuff. People talk about well, Cubans. It's like, no, no, no. It's Nicaraguans that are there. Venezuelans are there. Any place that has like a semi-authoritarian or authoritarian left-wing government, they're all Republicans. Down there, so you can't really do that. But I was really, really shocked. And one person said something to me, and I was like, God, I have to ask Gustavo about this, is that they say, well, you know, we are Mexican-American, all these people. I mean, it's the most um, Hispanic county in America, 97%, the least white. And everyone said, they, well, yeah, no, I every, I knew somebody who uh, flipped to Trump or somebody I talked to, they flipped to Trump. Or, you know, I sat with a whole group of people eating breakfast and they all voted for Trump. And they said, well, you know, the, one of the differences is we're Mexican-American, sure, but the differences were Tejanos. Tejanos mm-hmm. aren't the same thing as Mexican American. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, Southern California, that's when people think of Mexicans, East LA and all this stuff, these old kind of ideas of Mexican. It's like down here, we're Mexican Americans, but we're, we're Tejanos and, you know, the border crossed us and we're Texas, uh, Mexicans. There is that variation. And when people say, oh, well, you know, natural Republicans, you know, Catholic, et cetera. Um, yeah. I mean, I get where that kind of instinct comes from. But regionally, it seems that there's so many differences amongst Mexican-Americans that, you know, that's kind of more interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's nothing new. I mean, especially with yeah. the Tejanos, a lot of them have been there. Their families have been there for hundreds of years. Basically, Tejano, it's, it, uh, Tejano is a Mex- literally Mexican-American. They're far more and uh, far more Texan than anything than Me- Mexicano. So it's going to be different mm-hmm. from my experience. Again, I'm the child of Mexican immigrants. The first language I spoke was Spanish. Down there in the deep border, they're going to be speaking English and Spanish now for generations because that's just part of who they are. But they just have a different tie to where they're from. The Mexicans that are growing up, say, in Colorado, they're they're going to be far more left than say the Mexicans in northern New Mexico that have been there shit since the 1600s. They proudly call themselves we're the descendants of the conquistadors. The last place, the, the last place that's politically correct to cheer on conquistadors in the United States, northern New Mexico, and the deep south where there's a cult around Hernando de Soto. But yeah. no one do that story. That's my fucking story. If anyone <laughs> yeah. does that story, I will track you down. You're which, not supposed which, to uh, take can... we talk about it. Then they'll steal it. <laughs> it's my which story, one of them uh, sings Cortez the Killer unironically? Yeah. Just like, <laughs> embraces it. Yeah, no, that's great. what I said about uh, when they were talking about changing names and things and um, AOC uh, joined in and I was like, has she seen her last name uh, anytime recently? Because you might want to change that. Cortez. Exactly. <laughs> redolent of bad things but yeah but but like even in southern california like you know you talk about east la it's like this quintessential mexican chicano place okay well you have the younger generation of immigrants undocumented but then you'll have their like third generation folks are like rock rib republicans i have conversations with these folks and they get upset it's like the media always tries to put ourselves in a monolith like we are just all 
liberal slash more leftist invaders of this country who don't speak Spanish or whatever. You go to the folks in East LA, they, you know, they've served, they are police officers, whatever. I did this great profile of, uh, in my column of a guy named Randall Avila. And he is the, what is he? The executive director for the Republican party of Orange County. So this is a party of the kooks, of the weirdos, the land where all the good Republicans go to die, as Nixon said. And now it's being headed by, you know, not that he's not the chair, but he's the executive director. He's one of the big wigs. And he's a kid from a Chicano from East LA. Uh, specifically, grew up in Monterey Park, which is kind of right. a suburb right next to East LA. Now it's more like more Chinese than anything. And he said, "Yeah, my my dad, he never registered." Ever. He never voted until 2016 when he voted for Trump. And my dad's a security guard. Like he can't, he comes from a working class environment. And it's those stories that the media will never tell. That's what we, we definitely tell them at the Los Angeles Times. I definitely tell them. But it's interesting because when you tell those stories, People get mad. The establishment gets bad, mad, especially the Latino establishment. So, Michael, if you're down there in the border, you know, highlighting these Latino Republicans. Oh, well, you know, it's a tiny border. I have seen so many fucking say, excuses yeah. 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 from the Democrats about why Trump's uh, why Trump gained more Latino voters. I've seen them all to like, oh, well, you're not telling the stories about how way more Latinos voted for Demo- for Biden, which is technically true. But like they just want to make all sorts of excuses. They do not. They do not want to admit that in every Latino, there is that potential to go for a Republican candidate, to be conservative, to be libertarian. We're all not frothing leftist slash communist slash socialist or all of that. And you have to tell those stories because if you ignore those stories, that's where you get fucked. I think it's that, that you know, you have 8,000, 10,000, 18,000 people, whatever, in Stark County voting. I think in this election, you have to multiply that like dog ears by 10, because it's not just the Republican. It's Donald Trump. It's build yeah. the wall, Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump who says, you know, they're not bringing over their best. They're bringing over their rapist, et cetera. I mean, this is not an average Republican, a squishy kind of Jeb Bush type. I could, if that happened, I'd be like, oh, OK, I kind of get that. But you know, when you have people lurching towards Donald Trump, and as you said, there were a lot in Star County of first time voters that registered and, and to vote for Rep- a Republican a presidential candidate. And there were two things. Things. One of them is immigration, um, which is really interesting. And they're yeah. like, hey, we don't we don't want to coming through our backyard. And then because Americans don't understand that there's anything but Hispanics, there is a kind of um, opinion that that people might have about certain Central American countries and people coming in. And the other one was fracking. Because uh, all of those jobs in Texas yeah. that they're oh, all wow. making good money on. Those working and they were, class jobs. They're like, Biden's going to kill fracking. Yeah. Not only that, 50% of the Border Patrol now, La Migra, is Latino. And the, and a lot of these are, ki- are kids from border counties, not just in Texas, but also Imperial County in California. You get the counties in Arizona and New Mexico. And they go into them and they'll say, like, I do not like, you know, I think they should all come over, but like, I gotta, you know, I want to get a good paying job. Otherwise, I'm going to be a dirt farmer for whatever. And oh, and going back to this whole idea of immigration, I always say this. Who hates Mexicans more than Donald Trump? Mexicans. <laughs> there is also this idea that we're all, even within Mexicans, that we're all united. Oh, we despise each other. Like yeah. los de uh, Jalisco hate los de Oaxaca. In other words, the people from Jalisco, the lighter skinned folks hate the darker skinned Mexicans. Uh, the, the Mexicans, oh, shit, my parents come from villages one apart. The people from my mom's village, they were equally poor, but the people from my mom's village, El Cargadero, they were light skinned. The people from my dad's village, Homulquillo, they were dark skinned. Guess who had the superiority complex? Exactly. Mm. And this is just one village away from each other. There's all this hatred. And then, oh God, then you start getting other Latin American groups. Forget it. We're one 
fractious bunch of pendejos. That's what we are. We are. We <laughs> like if we had that solidarity that people make us. If we had that solidarity that the right insists we have, the whole reconquista idea. Oh man, we we would have conquered this country. Shit, back in the days of oh, you know Pedro Guerrero or somebody, he would have been our our, our king or something. But, Fernando Valenzuela, you, 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 Fernando Valenzuela, yeah, because Fernando Mania, duh, the fortieth anniversary. Check out Fernando. the documentary we're doing for LA Times. Oh, oh that's that's, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah um, but but yeah. so that's why I again I laugh on on both sides, and this is where I get in trouble with both sides. It's like you folks do not want the complexities you folks do not know the history and because of that you each side keeps screwing itself over one or the other and no side ever really uh capitalizes on this great opportunity you know we're talking about political parties to be able to grab a significant chunk and yeah the democrats have it but be care you know be careful what you have because it could easily snap uh you know uh, go away if the other side ever gets their fucking act together so there was a um, uh, exit poll stuff that came out. Um, there's the initial that com- comes out right after the election, uh, during the election. But then I think it was last week. Yeah. Um, there's a more thoroughgoing, uh, better data uh, uh, that was looked at uh, with the Latino or Hispanic vote. I forget how they, they phrased it. Latinx. That's Latinx vote. Um, the pendejo vote one for one, <laughs> <laughs> once and for all. Um, but uh, how do you explain to the extent that it's explicable? Their finding was basically Biden got eight percentage points less than Hillary Clinton. Right. So we've had four years of Trump. We've seen this guy and we've also seen the reaction to this guy. Um, is there some kind of shorthand explanation about Eight percentage points. That's a lot of percentage points. That's like that's pretty big. It, you know, it, it came this close to counteracting the Mormon defection from yeah. Trump in Arizona. You know, like it's a lot of weird stuff going in a lot of directions. But what's your pet theory for why that might be? It was 2020. Look, all of these people that uh, I talk about, my cousins, my uncles, whatever. I don't think any of them voted for Trump. We just didn't like him at all. But these a lot of these Latinos, working class folks. They do not want to be pushed into radical politics. So they mm-hmm. see people marching on the street. They see people breaking windows. They see the Democratic Party talking about racial justice and, you know, uh, rep- you know not, not even not reparations. That's not even going there. Uh, just reconciliation and all that. They're like, I want a fucking job. I want a better paying job. I do not care about what happened in the past. And I'm not saying this is right, by the way. I am, I, you know, I have my critiques of that thinking, but that's where it gets. And so they see the Democrats rushing towards the left and they're like, we're not left. We don't like Republicans, but we're not left. So Biden, if that's what he's going to sign off on, well, I might as well vote for Trump because Trump was supposed to be the apocalypse. And like, I saw this is for the working, the average working class Mexican American. I still, you know, who has a good paying job like fracking, I still have my job. You're telling me now my job is worthless. You're saying that I myself is worthless. Well, I might as well vote for you. It's a pro- Latinos, most especially Mexican Americans, there, there's always this idea the sleeping giant was such a stupid uh, cliche. But there's a certain sense to it is that when we vote, we vote out of spite and anger. Here in California, we're still voting against the Republican Party for, you know, 25 years after Prop 187, which was this 1994 initiative that sought to make life miserable for undocumented people. So out here, like, yeah, Trump got drubbed. Biden did not do as bad as, say, in other places or whatnot, but anywhere else where you don't have that legacy. Yeah, you're going to go to the party where you think is going to be the law and order party. And for them, it's not the Democrats anymore. How much of it is uh, is a sense of of patriotism too i always wonder about that because one of the critiques that you'll see in uh you know the post george floyd protests 
uh, in general, in, in like a lot of the discourse about race in America and the history and all that, um, it paints America in a pretty bad light, regardless of whether one agrees with that or partly with it or whatever. Um, I found as someone who's married to a naturalized U.S. citizen who's an immigrant, um, man, the immigrants are a bit more patriotic than the uh, old assholes like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, th- with Mexicans, we're always going to be skeptical towards the United States just because, hey, the United States stole half of our fucking land and like has been hating us for all these years. But again, we like we won it, we won it, oh, like Square, square. <laughs> stole, man, yeah. stole that, that that poker game was legit. Don't There's let no... me don't make me pull out the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo <laughs> right now and bore, and bore all your listeners. But that said, it's like it's in a terms James of pay- Polk tattoo. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? God, you must be a, a fucking loser if you have that. I mean, or you're, you'd be worse if you have Franklin Pierce. Um, yeah. But you know, but when it comes to these things, um, what is patriotism? I remember one time my, uh, someone told me like, "Oh, your dad's not uh, patriotic because he doesn't uh, wave the American flag." I'm like, "Well, what do you want my dad to be?" My dad came to this country without papers, became a citizen. Bought a house, paid off the mortgage a couple of years ago. His four kids went to college. He pays his taxes all the time. He pays his fucking car insurance and forces us all to buy car insurance at the beginning of time because that's what the right thing you're supposed to do. I'm like, what else do you want out of somebody? So, but when it comes in, the other big thing though is again, since I said 2020, what was the big message of 2020? One of the things, Black Lives Matter. Let's be honest. There's a lot of fucking Mexicans who do not like black people. So, and especially, I would see this on Instagram. Oh, black lives matter. Well, what about Mexican lives? Well, you know, don't all lives matter? They're fucking sounding like uh, Fox News. And I'm like, oh man, I got to talk to these people and try to explain to them the whole thinking behind that. So when you see protests on the street, black lives matter, Democrats embracing that, they're like, I don't want that. So it's, it's a mix of don't attack my working class, uh, status. I'm not only don't force anything black lives matter on me. And also, who the hell's Joe Biden? Some old white guy? Give me the fucking loudmouth Trump, you know, Trump, who's basically a Mexican. I remember an Aspen Mexican. My, my column ended in 2017. So I, I was able to write about the Trump election. I wish I could pull it up, but I wrote a column saying that Trump is a quintessential Mexican. I, and, you know, loudmouth says what's on his mind. In Spanish, he says, sin pelos en la lengua, without hair on the tongue. Um, all these other things. I, I, I wish I could remember it, but yeah, I mean, he wants to be a Mexican. Uh, you know, he basically is a priista. He wanted to create a cult of, uh, of a presidency around him. And guess what? All of you fucking, uh, Trumpers and all that, you're basically Mexicans now because you worship <laughs> a demigod that you, you basically worship the floating arm of Alvaro Obregón. Alvaro Obregón was a guy, brilliant tactician who beat Pancho Villa, then had him assassinated, then became president of Mexico. And during the, Mex- the Mexican Revolution, he had, I think it was his uh, arm or le- no, it was his arm got blown off and he created an entire monument to his arm. That's what these Trumpsters are. Wow. They're like worshiping this dead arm called Donald Trump. It's funny because the, you notice the first person, he might have been the first leader to come out and defend Donald Trump uh, against the uh, Twitter and Facebook ban was uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador, who is like, know, yeah. and, and who, by the way, you know, is a leftist. He's not, yeah. you know, nothing, but, you know, there's something, there's some kinship. He's like, look, let the guy be a loudmouth on on Facebook and, <laughs> and on Twitter. I wanted to, and, I wanted and, to, and, and really quickly, just like, you know, Mexicans appreciate that. Mexicans appreciate somebody who just shit talks because no one can shit talk like Mexicans there. Uh, to, to the to the point though, it's like you know we talk about this periodically, and and now is a great opportunity to 
of all these variations in cultures and in political beliefs, because, you know, everybody kind of, you know, pushing everything into their narrative and trying to like shave off the sides to make it fit actually makes everything worse and makes politics mm. worse and makes society worse. And um, I noticed something the other day, and I mentioned this on the Patreon, which if you're not a subscriber, you should subscribe now. Um, Matt and I were talking about, oh, Camille was there too, is this guy, Tariq Nasheed, who is on Twitter as like a half a million, a uh, quarter of a million Twitter followers. And he's this like black nationalist guy. And he has a new documentary out that is about, this is, I said to Camille, it's like, this is guy is the most conservative guy in the world, but he's like a far kind of extreme, always talking about reparations and things like that. And he has a film that just came out about how the gay lobby is trying to effeminize mm. the black man. And the second thing I noticed was and the day later, after he was tweeting about this, it was a video that I think was from C-SPAN, and it was a L.A. radio host. You don't remember his name, do you, Matt? I sent it over to you, too. Terry Anderson. Terry Anderson. Oh, I know Terry. Yeah, yeah. who's a, a <laughs> black radio host. And it was a five, ten-minute rant about Mexicans. And mm -hmm. about and, and if you saw the comments underneath, I mean, this guy obviously tweeted it for a reason. Comments underneath would be like, yeah, this guy's speaking the truth. Finally, someone's saying it. And it's like, you know, you say Mexican, there's a lot of Mexicans that don't like black people. It's like, I just saw the other day a, you know, a, a, a black member of the Twitterati who has a quarter of a million followers posting a video that was just blatantly saying, we don't like Mexicans and they're taking our jobs. They come and screw up the community, et cetera. And I was kind of blown away by it. And I'm like, well, by my own logic, why wouldn't this happen? I always talk about, you know, these variations and this makes perfect sense. So what is that tension like? Because... In the East Coast, we got, um, you know, blacks and Koreans uh, after the Ice Cube song and the shooting that, that precipitated the L.A. riots. Um, what is the relationship like now in L.A.? Because, you know, you know, minority is such a relative word. I mean, L.A. is just you can't go and say minority. It's just like, you know, 33 percent here, 33 percent there. I mean, what is that relationship like now? Again, it depends on who you're talking about. When it comes to like the younger activist side, they all embrace Black Lives Matter. They yeah. all, in fact, LA Times, we did a story about how these are anti-police brutality activists among the Latino community in Southern California has been fighting this for decades and wondering like, hey, when are people ever going to pay attention to the fact that the, the people who are killed most by the LAPD are Latinos and it's Latino cops doing the shootings. But with Black Lives Matter, like, nope, we're just going to have to drop that for a while and we're going to completely, totally embrace Black Lives Matter and work with activists to try to, you know, we have the same... We have the same goal here, which is, uh, you know, uh, you know, fight against the LAPD and all these other, um, law enforcement, you know, uh, out of control law enforcement. So that's on the sort on the left. There is that unity towards the left. And also, you know, in that community, it's like they, they have honest conversations. Yeah. Too many working class black folks don't like Mexicans. Too many me working class Mexicans don't like black folks. And so that's then when you go out into the reality, it's like in, in oh, it's gosh. I, you want to talk about tension. One of the most, and now I could say this actually, because I, I have nerds who want to talk about it. One of the most racist things I've ever heard against Mexicans was said by Lauren Miller. Lauren Miller was a civil rights legend. This is the man who, along with Thurgood Marshall, basically you know, would argue cases up to the Supreme Court. The most famous one was, I can't remember the name, but it basically ended housing covenants. You know, this idea that you could only sell to certain amount, uh, you know, to people of a certain race. So this guy was a legend, became a Superior Court Justice in Southern California. Amazing, amazing guy. So I was once doing a story about a uh, housing covenant case here in Orange County 
uh, back from the 1940s. So I saw the oral history of Lauren Miller at the Cal State Fullerton Center for Oral and Public History, uh, which is an amazing institution. So I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, he's going to be the civil rights hero. Maybe he talked about this Mexican-American civil rights case. Nope. He was talking about the Zoot Suit Riots, Zoot Suit Riots being this oh. notorious uh, incident in Southern California. It was 1943, where a bunch of servicemen went to downtown L.A. and beat up Mexican-Americans who were wearing the big Zoot Suits. They called themselves pachucos, while the police officers would stand by and... um and see the Mexicans get beat up and then uh, arrest the Mexicans. So Lauren Miller basically, I, w- I wonder if I ever took a picture. I got to find it. But he basically called Mexicans cowards. Like, oh, these guys are a bunch of wusses. They got their asses kicked. It would never happen if it was black guys. If it was black guys, we'd kick those white <laughs> folks out. I remember reading it. My jaw dropped. This is a civil rights icon. And he's calling Mexicans a bunch of wimps. I'm like, oh, my fucking God, man. <laughs> Well, now I revealed it. I I once hinted at it in OC Weekly, but it was just so incendiary and it so went against my narrative. One of the few times, by the way, that I, you know, held back my punch, probably because I was so dazed. I'm like, oh my God, that's when I first realized here, there are no such things as heroes. There's always going to be something behind that shit. So the tension's there. But again, there was that same tension between the Irish and the German, like Chicago. I I love reading. Old, and I was telling this to Michael before we started. I just re- love reading the old immigrant narratives and just shows how much seething hatred there was. Chicago was basically a war zone. Like, oh, you can't cross that street because that's the Ukrainian side. And if you're a Lithuanian, fuck, man, you better run away from those fucking Lithuanians. It's like, as, as a kid growing up, as a Mexican kid growing in Southern California, I'm like, what the fuck are Lithuanians? I don't know what they are. Now you're telling me that they're as evil as like, uh, Ukrainians? I thought yeah. Ukrainians were cool. Like, it, it's so there's always like the they're tension, all bad, Gustavo. We're all bad. We're all fucking fucked. The the the, the tension's gonna be there, but that's just part of the American narrative. And then of course you go back to Mexico and Latin America, anti blackness. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. But at least with the left, there's sort of that push. Like dudes, we we gotta we gotta fucking uh, fix this once and for all. We gotta fix this. But isn't this a problem? Um on the left, especially now, and I, I, I tend not to actually, I don't think I've probably ever said on the left on this show, because I, I, I don't like the sound of it. And because <laughs> it just it just doesn't really make sense in a lot of it. But I do see it mostly on the left. I mean, this idea now that is permeating every part of culture, you know, particularly internet culture, where everything is dismissed as white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And particularly like, you know, so if, you know, something that, you know, Asians are getting into Stuyvesant in New York, where they say, well, you know, they're white adjacent and it's close yep. to white supremacy, everything being boiled down to being, you know, white versus everything else. I don't say this in the sense of like, oh, you know, poor white people, you know, they're being racist against us. What offends me most about it is that it's ahistorical and people mm-hmm. who have some sense of history do understand that hatreds seethe everywhere. And I constantly say this, you know, I can't find a country where they like immigrants anywhere in the world. If somebody comes from a neighboring country over the border, there's going to be people there waiting to beat them up. It just happens everywhere. And I mean, you see this like the Central Americans uh, coming through and there was like, you know, a riot in Tijuana. Uh, what, two years ago, three years ago? Yeah. Like, yeah. Against the, the, like, Central American immigrants. They're like, we don't want you in our country. It's like, guys, stop boiling it down to this essentialist idea of, you know, white supremacy. There's, you know, racism that exists in, you know, every, every group, but it's always far more interesting than that. Always far more challenging than that to say, as you said, going across the street as a Ukrainian, you might get beaten up by a Lithuanian. The, 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 the phrase white supremacy doesn't help us in that case and if anything it hinders us 
Th- there is, though, this idea that, I mean, we talk about ethnic Ukrainians and, you know, um, uh, shit, Romanians and French and all, you know, Greeks and all that. After two generations, all of a sudden, they think of themselves white. There's this legendary book called the How the Irish Became, Became white, white by yeah. Noel Ignatiev. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, again, we were talking about this off the air. I am a student of racism in the United States and all of its manifestations. Outside of uh, caricatures of blacks, I have never seen an uglier caricature of a race, of a group of people, than how Thomas Nast drew the Irish as apes, as literal fucking mm-hmm. Apes. That's worse than a cucaracha Mexican. Sorry. That's worse than a cockroach as fucking apes. But now it's like you try to tell white folks, oh, you know, that was your ethnic group. They'll, you know, they'll still say I'm Irish, but they consider themselves white. You graduate towards that. So in that sense, I understand where this idea of white supremacy and what, you know, America being this country run, like the bad parts being run by white. I get it, but I also don't buy it completely because white supremacy. How, uh, in Mexico, oh, you know, the light-skinned people have, uh, you know, uh, all the power. My mom was whiter than both Matt and Michael combined. Mm-hmm. Like, and that didn't stop her from picking garlic in, in Gilroy at nine years old. I, from the left, I've always been more of a class perspective. It's like, what good is it trashing working class whites if you're a working class Mexican and, you know, or how can I put it? Why, why are you going to elevate an upper class Mexican just because he's your kind when it's a working class white guy who lives in fucking, oh gosh, in Ventucky or Fontucky for that matter. That's your, that should be your ally. That's who'd be, that should be the person. One of my favorite films of all time, at least in talking about this, was a John Sayles movie, Matawan. Matawan, based on a true story of striking coal miners in Virginia, was striking Irish, what was it? It was striking Striking white uh, coal miners, then they got replaced by, or the you know, the, the strike got broken by Italians, and then here comes the black, uh, you know, African American coal miners to break the Italians, and of course everyone hates each other, but eventually they get union, and the, you know, and what brought them together was a baseball game where they finally realized we gotta set our we gotta set our fucking race differences, and we all believe in our differences, we one thousand percent believe in our differences, but what unites us, it's class, but this country. Will never, especially on the left. Oh, they talk a big talk about socialism and all that, but they never want to have the true discussion about class that people should have. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's I think ex- ex- exactly right, and it's essentially what I mean. Look, I think one of the things when you graduate from being Romanian, from being Italian, from being Irish, and all of those hatreds, which are kind of you know, uh, you know, they ferment in their own countries where they come from. I mean, you know, the English and the Italians are not necessarily, you know, developing new hatreds in America. They're bringing them over from, from where they came from. But I think mostly, you know, is it that people become white or they become American? There's a sort of unifying thing. They become American and kind of forget about the old country, forget about the old customs and maybe make a plate of pasta once in a while to pretend that they're Italian, yeah. you know, go out on Columbus Day or go out on St. Patrick's Day. But, you know, my, my difficulty with the phrase white supremacy is, well, I mean, number one, it's a very serious idea. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not a serious intellectual idea. It's a very serious problem, uh, that is minimized by making everything white supremacy because then nothing is. And I don't know at that point what to call a white supremacist, like a real person who says, I believe in the supremacy of the white lace. Yeah. I yeah. call them like a, you know, a fat loser with bad tattoos, but you know, th- we need terms for that, but you know, it's, it is, kind of strange that these days that where there is a narrative where everything is boiled down 
to that phrase, because you don't have to know very much. You don't have to know very much about history. You can deploy that phrase, and it shows that you're on the right side of your own version of history, and it shows that you're a good person. But I think it flattens everything, and all the complexities of, for instance, Latinos becomes, you know, thrown out the window, and people are shocked to find out every time. I can't believe all these people voted for Donald Trump. Why? Where have you been? I mean, these half these people that voted for him came to America in 1959, from Cuba. Do you know what happened yeah. in 1959? You're like, I don't know, white supremacy? Kind of. But you know, I mean, Castro's pretty white. Well, Castro was upper class, yeah. And, and by the way, Cuba, for you know all the people that defend it, um, very, very bad record on race for the past 40 years, despite the fact of what they've said. And there's a couple of great memoirs uh, from black Cubans uh, about being discriminated against. But, you know, again, it, happen- it happens everywhere. And I just think that now... Uh, social media is probably one of the culprits here is that we are getting dumber about this stuff when we use this kind of phrase politics that replaces any knowledge of what happened in the recent past. And no, you, know, you, that- you, you need to know your history. You absolutely need to know your history. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, if people knew that, yeah, fucking Irish were discriminated against like crazy, that, yeah, Italians were just like fucking, they were basically treated like trash. If all that, it gives you a bigger sense to say, like, maybe you shouldn't call just any white person a white supremacist or even assume that they're white. Like, think about it. Build build alliances that go beyond just phrases, as you said. Again, for me, it's more of a class-based alliance. I, I And I said this the other day, like, I'm more comfortable, again, working class, my family's rural, basically Mexican hillbillies. I am far more comfortable among, you know, hicks, hillbillies in fucking uh, Albany, Kentucky. And I've been to Albany, Kentucky. You don't pronounce it Albany, you pronounce it Albany. Mm-hmm. Albany, Kentucky. Far more comfortable with them than around rich Mexicans. I cannot stand rich Mexicans. <laughs> they are so pompous. They're, in Spanish, we have a term for them, fresa, strawberries. So pompous. So they think they are the leaders of the world. Because when have you seen a rich Mexican? Well, I'm a rich Mexican, so obviously I'm cool. I cannot stand them. I feel uncomfortable, frankly, being around super rich people. And I go around the area. I feel far more comfortable with, you know, with working class. Even hanging out like with my personal friends. Like, look, I talk to a lot of people. I'm friendly with a lot of people, but in terms of hanging out with the people that I have, it's very, very small number. And that, and I even have a nickname. These are, these are my cousins, the guys I've grown up with in seventh grade with some new people over the years. There's like, like seven of us. And we call ourselves the Mexican. And we're not all Mexicans, but we're all guys who grew up working class and we'll talk, you know, we'll shoot the shit and we'll cuss and then we'll have our opinions that maybe we shouldn't say out in public, but, We've worked. We know where we come from. We're not going to be, we're not intellectuals. We're not even, and you know, we might even think a little bit left, but not always on the left. You're heterodox, if you want to use that word. I feel far more comfortable with them than going to say, uh, uh, you know, a conference, uh, you know, at my alma mater, UCLA, where it's all a bunch of academics who think we're holier than thou and we're raining down wisdom on the hoi polloi, on, on these pendejos who don't know jack shit. Mm. One thing that really bothered uh, me as I got older and started uh, reading more about the history of California because we're not really taught the history of California living in California is how much more interesting it is and colorful and weird it is. And also Mexican it is like literally, I'm not sure Pio Pico spoke English. Like, like if you you look at the great, like uh, the great ranchos that uh, dominated uh, life there. The, the Basques, what the fuck were the Basques doing? Well, they were making all the money in like the 1880s and 1890s, and they still have some They're great all diners. cheap. Baston Churry, man. <laughs> they like, they knew how to sell shit to the, to the gold idiots. Uh, they're great. Um, all of that stuff and the conflicts that, uh, come with it 
totally flattened. I'm sure it's much different now, but like the California education was just basically like, oh, the missions. When you're in fourth grade, you make the mission. Yep. And then it's, isn't that a beautiful old building? And we don't really have old buildings like Europe does. So isn't that a pretty mission? That's, it doesn't get a lot more complex than that. And the actual history is so much more fun. Um, and filled with rogues and weirdos and double crossers and people who had a very, very fluid identity between North and South. Like the border didn't really mean a whole lot to them. Um, their attitudes uh, towards the Civil War were really weird and strange and interesting <laughs> to think about. Um, there were a bunch of French. There were a bunch of Russians uh, lurking it, around. It was always a weird place. And we're not taught that. And it's so much more interesting than than like trying to make it all some kind of like Old West Knott's Berry Farm type stuff, which is kind of hokey and fun on its own. But like it's 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 sad because I it just it, I think it's so much more alluring naturally for a kid to see actual weirdos or just tell the full damn history. Uh, another historical thing that is should not be mentioned in polite circles. One of the first African-Americans in Los Angeles, and I can't remember his name. He might be the first one. He was a confederate. In fact, he got arrested for cheering on the Confederacy during yeah, the Civil that. War. But you sure as hell can't tell that story because, again, it just fucks everything up. These narratives <laughs> of like this, this and that. There, there, I can't remember his name, but there's a um, uh, what do you call it? An academic paper on him. And I'm reading. I'm like, dude, this guy seemed to be a party and a half. Like you're black <laughs> and you're cheering on the Confederacy in a union state during the Civil War. Damn. But. <laughs> Los Angeles, Orange County, it was it was Confederate. There was a lot of conf- uh, the, yeah. people from the South there. Orange County was founded by a member of the Ku Klux Klan who rode with Nathan Bedford Forrest. I mean, this is you know kind of s- not segueing or talking about, it, but this is why I always say like this is why you, in California at least you need ethnic studies because if you tell the boring stories, they don't get in there. Ethnic studies now, I have a problem with the ethnic studies in the sense that it teaches all this victimology. I. I always tell people, my parents never taught me to be a victim, nor should we ever teach people to be a victim. But because the regular history books are so fucking bad, then you, this is why ethnic <laughs> studies arose. Like, you're not going to tell the stories of Asian Americans, of African Americans and all that. Well, we have to create our own separate subjects. So until you could, I would appreciate that. I would hope that the two subjects would bro, uh, would, uh, would be broached or, you know, breach or whatever, what, whatever the fucking word that is. But, you know, <laughs> his, history with ethnic studies, then you don't need either. You just combine it. You just teach history, but that's never going to happen. It's never happened because, yeah, Matt says, oh, yeah, the mission system. Oh, the Californians, whatever. How about all those Native Americans who fucking got killed and died and were stuffed in their, like, fucking, uh, uh, jails? They, you never teach that or all those orange crates. Oh, yeah, there was all these oranges in Orange County and we're uh, citrus land. Well, what about the like, you know, those orange crate labels? You never showed the Mexicans like my grandpa who are fucking picking oranges during the 1920s and forced to live on the Mexican side of town under penalty of getting your ass kicked. Yeah. Well, Gustavo, before we let you go, I want to I want to broach one very important subject, one that you've written about and one that I've heard you talk very fluidly about. And it is as somebody who wrote a book about this topic, it is your full throated defense of Taco Bell. (laughs) <laughs> which uh, is, you know, amongst the bien pensant types, uh, you know, considered cultural appropriation, considered uh, stealing from a very particular taqueria in, in Los Angeles. You've you've uh, defended Taco Bell. Um, yeah. g- give me the potted version uh, of, uh, of your defense of Taco Bell. It's very important for people to know this. Well, first of all, Del Taco is better than Taco Bell. That's out of the way. That's true. Uh, Matt appreciates and- that. 
And yeah. Jack in the Box tacos. Oh my god, Jack in the Box tacos the best. They are really they're deep fried, right? There's that I, I've had them there. It's, so it's just crap. I don't even know. It's what it just, is. You gotta eat them. You gotta eat them. That's all, that's all we can say right now. But Taco Bell, <laughs> it's so easy to hate Taco Bell. I used to hate Taco Bell. I don't like the food. I've never liked the food. But when I did my book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, I have the whole passage about the history of tacos. So I, in, in doing that book, I read the biography. The Yeah, it was a biography of the founder of Taco Bell. His name's Glenn Bell. And so he talks about how he got the idea to make tacos. I mean, you want to talk about a great story. This is a kid who's originally from Long Beach. His family, his grandparents were rich, but his dad was j- basically a bum. So he grew up poor. Goes to World War II, ends up in San Bernardino, and he, in his mind, is like, I want to get rich. So he would park across the street from the original McDonald's and see the McDonald brothers get out of their big, fancy Lincolns and just see, literally, he would write about it, just see. He's like, I got to become rich. I'm not going to make it with uh, hamburgers. I'm going to make it with Mexican food. So he ends up in the early 1950s, gets a hamburger and hot dog stand right on the old Route 66, which happened to cross through the Mexican side of San Bernardino, which is the west side. And right across the street, there's this Mexican restaurant. And he every night he'd go across the street, find the tacos, eat them, go back to his place, reverse engineer him and all that. He admits this all in his book. And so for me, immediately, like, oh, yeah, it's cultural appropriation. White guy taking this these tacos or whatnot. But me curious, I'm like, okay, well, he, I know the address of his original, um, hamburger hot dog stand. I'm just going to go drive out there to San Bernardino, about an hour away from where I live here in Orange County. And let's see what I find. 90% of restaurants close within 10 years. I'm like, there's no way on earth any of those restaurants are going to be open. Well, I go there, the hamburger and hot dog stand still there, the structure itself, but it no, you know, as a business, it no longer has anything to do with Taco Bell. But the restaurant, the Mexican restaurant where Glenn Bell got his tacos from is still there. Meet La Cafe, celebrated 85 years, I think, this past year. So I go in there. I order the tacos. Oh, man, it is like a time capsule, delicious, crispy time capsule, hard shell tacos, fried fresh, ground beef inside with some mashed potato, then the rainbow of like red tomatoes, the cabbage, the blizzard of orange cheese right there. I eat them. Then I ask to speak to the owners, this old, old, older Mexicana. Uh, later on, I, I find out she's the daughter-in-law of the founders of Meat La Cafe. Uh, her name's Irene Montaño. And I ask her, is it true? I, I heard that Glenn Bell would take, you know, stole, uh, would come here and eat tacos. And that's how he ended up uh, doing Taco Bell. She's like, oh, yeah, I remember him. Like, he'd come in every night and we'd be like, what's this white guy doing here late at night? <laughs> and then my father-in-law finally said, you know what? Just, hey, dude, guy, I know you're trying to steal my tacos. I'm going to teach you how to make the tacos. And, and, you know, as a historian, you're like, oh, my God, this is fucking gold. Then I asked her the next question. Well, how does your family feel that Glenn Bell made a multi-billion dollar empire off of Taco Bell. And this is the answer that literally changed my perspective on so many things. She said, Irene Montaño said, good for him. He's been around for 50 years. We've been around for 75 years and our tacos are better. Oh, yeah. Blew my fucking mind away. I Literally, my mind on cultural appropriation changed forever. For me, it's about, look, anyone can do whatever they want, but it better be good. If it's not good, then I... You know, you deserve all the shit that's going to be rained down on you. But this idea that somehow white people cannot cook Mexican food is preposterous as telling my cousins, hey, you can't make a hamburger on fucking Mexican Independence Day the way he does. He makes fucking good ass hamburgers. (laughs) Uh, Gustavo, thank you so much. I want to give you a brief opportunity now because we have uh, our listeners uh, listen to us. And every time someone comes on, you know, they go and buy their books and download their things. So tell us the podcast. Tell us where to get it. And uh, where is your uh, writing these days? 
So the podcast is called The Times, daily news from the LA Times. You find us, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, blah, blah, blah. But if you want to catch up with all of my writings, I, su- I suggest you subscribe to my newsletter called Gustavo Ariano's Weekly. Go to gustavoariano.org. I send it every Saturday. I send like a little missive. I put a song of the week, an article of the week, a picture of the week, a quote of the week, and then just put all the episodes that I come on. The We the Fifth's got to come out this Saturday. So GustavoArellano.org, sign up. All right. It's so good, people. Oh, do you subscribe, go, Matt? Do you subscribe? Yeah. All right, I got to oh, subscribe. Oh, thank you. I, I subscribe. didn't know that. I got to subscribe. All right, Gustavo, thank you for uh, for taking the time to uh, yell at us about uh, Mexicans. <laughs> I didn't even do much of that, so whatever. <laughs> Next time. Thanks, man. We, 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 we know of new method. Yeah, so attack. let's uh, talk about the world. Let's talk about the stuff that's happening. So because all, there's all a I sense that it's all collapsing. Well, <laughs> that's what Camille said today. <laughs> the second, the second jab of the vaccine, it's got him like yeah, uh, I think it's seeing him visions and saying yeah. crazy stuff. And yeah, um, no, he's like Hunter Thompson at the in in like <laughs> you know walking over the crocodiles uh, <laughs> in, the, in the Vegas hotel. I wake up to a bunch of chicken little stories about the end of the Republican party, which I've seen these a million times, but these ones are slightly different, right? Cause uh, Liz Cheney has bounced from leadership uh, causing uh, a little bit of a rift. I mean, remember that she survived the secret ballot with, you know, 60 odd to 30 odd, right? Was it like, it was something like that. It was some, yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a, you know, a pretty sizable win for her. But now when it's, when it's an open vote, uh, people apparently aren't aren't are scared to to um, you know reaffirm their support for for Liz Cheney. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to the White House talking about bipartisanship, as you know, said something like you know when he was I think it was in Congress the other day where he was talking about like you know cancel culture and all this stuff, and it's just sure. you know the guy just has no sense of what's going on around him as he's running Liz Cheney out of town. Now, th- here's an important caveat. This has nothing to do with Liz Cheney's politics. It, it's her politics that are actually making her persona non grata in the party. But one can have this conversation without so, sort of patting Liz Cheney on the back and saying, you know, she's my gal and this is the way the Republican Party should be. Um, but there is something crazy and unseemly about this. And, you know, Jeff Flake had a piece today or he, I think it was a piece where he said something about, you know, there's no greater offense uh, than telling the truth in the Republican Party today and then we see a news story about 100 Republicans. We don't know who these are. It could be the usual suspects um, who are both, you know, actual politicians, opinion type people, thinkers, think tank types that were talking, as we've heard so many times, about starting a third party. Mm-hmm. No labels, Matt. Um, <laughs> so many successful. Yeah, John Kasich is tanned, arrested, and yeah. ready. There's a couple of like uh, side elements of this, which might be a way to get into it. Uh, one is that there is a reflexive and deserved in many ways scoffing that you'll hear among a lot of libertarians, uh, the civil libertarian left, um, uh, who goes straight to, oh, she's a total hero now, a Cheney who's a neocon in a war, Iraq, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was that a Glenn Greenwald impersonation? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit. I gotta try to do it. I gotta get my Glenn voice. I haven't. Nah, I haven't no, it's, it's more pinched than it's that. Very pinched. I think it'd be mad. It's also though. aggressive. Yeah. Um, but growling. with a little, but with a little bit of, of playfulness. Yeah. The, not a, but the fifth column listeners know. Um, <laughs> and it's like uh, that's all true. Um, and it's 
um, it's an interesting time to bring that up. I, I noticed there's there's reflex when people uh, go to the mat to you know give a speech or do a thing, make a gesture. Who are Republican politicians elected uh, in senior leadership of some way or another? A Mitt Romney type comes and mm-hmm. says, you know, I'm going to vote for impeachment and give a stirring speech. People are like, yeah, you know what? He sucks on immigration. And you know what? From my point of view, and I've written about this at great length, both before, during and after Trump, mm-hmm. he does suck on immigration. Um, and interesting for you to get excited about that topic right now. Were you talking about Mitt Romney and immigration last week, the week before when it was happening? Uh, which I was, um, uh, not to like make it a contest. Um, there's this reflex of, of like, you're already reacting to the reaction, mm-hmm. the, the, the lion, the, the perceived attempt at lionization or whitewashing of characters. And I understand the reflex and Glenn Greenwald is right to point out as is Matt Taibbi that there's a whole kind of ecosystem of CIA, uh, you know, NSA, just bad people, like John Brennan, you know, who are like have they're out there on on CNN or MSNBC as contributed as contributors after having lied uh, directly to the American people simply because they have anti-Trump credentials. So I get that as uh, a reflex, but um, it's also possible to say that hmm, if I'm an independent thinker, chances are. Many, if not most people in Congress are going to offend my values and have supported things that I don't like. By the way, Liz Cheney was not in power in 2003. She, I think, was elected in 2017. Um, uh, kind of worth pointing out. But also just sort of like know the, um, uh, know the ecosystem of Republican, elected Republican anti-Trumpers. It's weird. It's a weird coalition. It, it consists is. of three branches. As far as I can tell, and one of them kind of overlaps in the two, those branches are neocons, always has been, like the uh, whole Lincoln Project people, just rife full of neocons, the McCain-ite wing to the extent that it exists, because a lot of them made the Lindsey Graham choice, Um, but the ones who decided to stay anti-Trump, it's super foreign policy interventionists, that's one wing, the super duper libertarians, the Justin Mm -hmm. Amash wing, um, who... You know, and don't Peter spend Meyer, a lot of time our, our having a great – our friend yeah. Peter Meyer, yeah. um, who isn't as libertarian as Justin Amash, but like, uh, you know, has some some similar Im- impulses. And it's also Mormons, the Mitt Romneys and other people. And Mormons tend to be more interventionist. Some of them are less, like Mike Lee. Um, those are the people who have traditionally raised hackles. Um, and this is one of the reasons why you're not ever going to get, you know, 100 people are going to sign on to a new political party. Well, dude – um, your, your, your wings of people who, uh, are outraged at Trump. Mormons tend to be from a personal comportment standpoint, neocons, um, and libertarians both in their opposite ways because they are more adhered to principle, whether you agree with them or not. Um, and they see Trump as being against their own principles and also just an, uh, a principle less person. Um, so it makes sense that those camps would come together um, uh, for this one little project, but otherwise we'll never agree with one another and are never going to get elected to anything and are never going to, as far as I can tell, and I don't want to say never in politics, are never going to uh, control the ship of state in the Republican Party because Donald Trump yeah. is still popular. He's just- still popular. I mean, the Nikki Haley the other day, you know, conceded to Donald Trump I'm, that she's not going to run in 2024, which is, you know, basically directed at 
Donald Trump saying, by the way, I'm, I'm standing on, uh, you know, go ahead. I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not going to primary you. I'm not going to screw with you. But I think that, that these people and people who uh, think uh, Donald Trump is actively destroying the Republican party or has, and I'm one of those people, by the way, I, I, I believe that um, particularly when it comes to things that Republicans typically, uh, you know, we're four square behind, you know, and it's, I mean, there is no kind of libertarian instinct amongst, you know, the Republican leadership right now at all, at all. I mean, look, it'll come back because inflation is, you know, at it's, you know, what was it since 2008? This is the biggest increase in this amount of time since 2008. Um, you know, consumer price index, all this stuff that's going up. And, you know, it's going to be transitory, uh, Jerome Powell says. It's going to be just going to come and go. But in that time, Republicans are going to have a lot of time to take pot shots at uh, the Biden administration because inflationary policy is essentially tied to monetary policy. There's, you know, you can, you can say this is one and the same. There's other factors, but this is um, certainly having a huge effect. And I don't care about their critiques. You know, I, I, maybe some people aren't paying attention and just say, oh, they're saying the right thing's great. You know, clap, clap, clap. But fuck you. Honestly, I mean, how dumb do you think we are? And I think the answer is most of us are pretty dumb. But how dumb do you think we are that you're going to do the opposite thing for four years? Not even just like, okay, I have to do this because I'm held captive. You know, prisoners do a lot of shitty things that they don't. You know, I don't I'm not going to I wouldn't normally have a relationship with that guy. But, you know, in prison. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to broaden my horizons a little bit. This is not what's happening with these people. They actively went out. And said, these are the things that I believe. There's a way of doing it, of towing the party line without changing your principles. And, you know, I'm going to be four square behind Donald Trump and, you know, saying this all the time and saying, you know, um, that free trade is a problem, that immigration is the greatest threat to to the American economy, et cetera. And, and, and that we need to no, no longer hold the line on spending. Yes, it's absolutely the opposite of that and saying this is how you do it, spend, spend more. I mean, Donald Trump left office trying to convince Congress to give the American people more money. Now, granted, he's trying to buy people's votes, right? And but I think with these with these kind of dissident Republicans and conservatives and libertarians or politically homeless people that say I'd love a party that I could at least once in a while vote for. And if it's Donald Trump's party, I could never vote for it. The one thing that they should emphasize, and I know this is a, a dumb idea because I know that people don't respond to things like this, but I'd love to see it hammered home over and over and over again, is they say, look, hey, the reason we're behind Donald Trump and the reason we're still talking to Donald Trump's voters is because he got 75 million votes in the last election. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Let me take that one step further for you. If Donald Trump wasn't such a repulsive, knuckle-dragging, like, asshole, and this is actually true, because you look at the polling data of people who are actually repulsed by him, the Republican Party probably would have won, right? I think that's, I think that we could make a very, very good case that if, you know, it wasn't Donald Trump, and the economy was the same, going great, but shut down by COVID. The situations were, were roughly parallel. We would have had a very, very, very different election. I mean, you know, Joe Biden bumbling through things on that debate stage, bumbling through a campaign, being locked in the basement and not coming out, which was a joke the conservatives made, but was actually true. Um, the, the, their calculation was let him implode and we'll just keep him quiet. And people will say like, yeah, this guy seems a little more stable particularly in the midst of a pandemic, right? That was the thing that like people like, it's so refreshing. It's like, yeah, you know, it's not refreshing after four years. It's no longer refreshing. 
the end of that 64 ounce uh, fountain drink is no longer refreshing. <laughs> right. It's like, I just, drink, I'm fine. Like, I don't want to be refreshed anymore. I need to get back to some semblance of normalcy. And what that means for me is, uh, you know, look, I've made this argument. Camille's made this argument. You've made this argument. And I'm kind of arguing against it in some way now is that, look, even though he's rough around the edges, what about this? Um, I think we're at the point where we can have somebody who's uh, not rough around the edges and has uh, principles that that maybe people in the Republican Party um, once had that I could occasionally appreciate. And that is well, something think, about spending. I think I think that uh, the modal non-Trump is going to be Ron DeSantis until yes. until proven otherwise, which is someone who is going to be Trumpy, but yeah, pugnacious about being ganged up on by the media, which he totally has been. There's has, just no yeah. question about yeah. that. The 60 minutes hit job, which we've talked about before, yeah. um, but just kind of the relentlessness of, oh, my God, you know, like just eye rolling at the rubes in Florida, Florida, by the way, a state that from I was looking at this today for a reason column that I'm doing a magazine column for the future. Um, Florida and Texas have the same population as California combined uh, in 1990, right? 29.9 million or so, both of them. Um, 2020, um, they're like at 50.1 million. You know, Florida's mm-hmm. lapped New York. Like there's there's a way in which you just at some point have to acknowledge that um, some states are winning and others are. California, it just came out this week, lost population from the year before for the first, first time, time in its history. Yeah, its history. I mean, they lost a congressional seat in the census for the first time in their history, but they lost population year over year. Um, that should Can tell I interject you something. quickly yeah. why that is. You're from California. You know this. You know exactly why it is. But I'm going to tell I'm going to give you a slightly alternate theory here. There's a Twitter account that I think I sent to you that is uh, purely videos of um, of people on Venice Beach of fighting bum fights on Venice. Yeah, it's Venice, like yeah. it's like literally modern bum fights. Yeah, and as you know, it's like white people world star. It's just like literally, it's literally like drunk hobos on Venice Beach like fighting each other. Like it's crazy, and like the police can't really intervene. And I mean, they can when they're fighting, but it's so nuts. It's not even that, um, that, I mean, sure. There's some people who are going to move as a result of that, but it's more, that's an avatar of the fundamental problem, which is that that's too much money to live there. Uh, That's too much money to live in the tri-state area where, uh, we're sitting right now. Yeah. Um, and these places can't, uh, contain population. Um, thing to think about with, Trump, GOP, and whatnot. And I'm saying this, and I I want to all of branch to all the listeners who I know the last time that we all talked, they went on their on their doghouse room and sort of like talked about who has the worst Trump derangement syndrome or whatnot. Amongst so us? just me, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was based on me and Camille, uh, uh, probably me just barking at Camille about this oh, yeah, and that. Yeah, yeah, you guys. Uh, about uh, January 6th and Hillary and I had one listener, like by the way, of a, a very, uh, Mary, our friend Mary. It's, I'm just oh, saying yeah. her first name is, who's a, who's a great uh, a fan of ours and, a, and um, a Patreon subscriber and just a lovely person. She sent, uh, she sent me a message. And I'm sorry to rat you out, Mary, but she's like, you know, when I was listening in the car and Matt and Camille yelling at each other, she was like a mom and like didn't, didn't want to see the kids fighting and wanted to break it up. <laughs> and I, I was like, I want to encourage it. I want to keep it going. Say, all I got to say to you people is <laughs> you should hear when we're not recording. 
Anyways, <laughs> um, uh, no, like a, a thing to think about for uh, for uh, like imagining a Republican Party, like imagining that there's some wing within it that wants to get back to like decency and tax cuts and being, you know, free trade and keeping a cap on government spending. Um, maybe depending on how you look at it, being a shining city on the hill, it's an amorphous uh, phrase mm-hmm. or whatever. Look, um, in the last presidential election, primary election, Republicans had three other competitors in that field. They had a Rockefeller Republican yep. in Bill, Bill Weld. Yep. They had a former, uh, a former like sort of Tea Party fire breather, Joe Walsh, not the Eagles guitarist, sadly. Although I like Joe. Um, and uh, they had uh, who the fuck was the third one? Again? Um, oh yeah, it was Mark Sanford for a hot yeah moment, for a right? second yeah um, right got lost um, in the Appalachian Trail. Sorry, you just have to make that reference every time. every single time every time every Sorry. single time he um, broke up another, with her, didn't he? Uh, yeah, I think I think That's he didn't. Uh, Love didn't win. Um, Love did not win at least for the long term. Um, and <laughs> there was, I mean, there were some, you know, consecutive months. I think Bill Weld was running for like 10 months, almost a year. Um, those guys combined never polled above 5%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the Gallup polls had Trump throughout being more popular with the Republican party, basically than any modern Republican politician. So one of the things that Liz Cheney, and you can agree with every word that she might've said in her speech. I don't know if I did mostly because I didn't listen to it, but I saw some clips of it. Um, I agree that there is uh, like, there's a fundamental kind of cowardice at play right now. And even kind of a wink and a nudge like, Oh no, we're not totally Trumpified. Are you kidding? We um, there's uh, we just don't pay a lot of attention to that stuff, etc. Um, I think that's interesting and it's worth thinking about, especially in, in terms of, you know, the term of art that's that's uh, commonly used of the big lie of uh, Biden stealing the election and whatnot. Um, but um, she also decided very clearly about a week, 10 days ago to make a big stink about this, to write the like column in The Washington Post saying, you know, this party is not going to last if it doesn't do what I want it to do right now giving a, a dramatic speech. And she's a person who's what number three in leadership mm-hmm. in the house um, about as worthless of a position as you could possibly imagine. It's like being and the I, number two in Al Qaeda. There's just always another one. <laughs> it's just I, like no one even knows his name. <laughs> I, I mean that in a bunch of different senses, but the, but the big one is, Al-Qaeda, by the way. is not totally fine. It's, it's Cheney Al Qaeda. Like it writes itself. Um, is that like, the fuck does Congress do? And certainly what the fuck does the opposition party in Congress do? Certainly not opposing anything in a useful no. way. Um, Congress hasn't been passing laws for well, about I, I, a no. decade plus now. So no. it's just like up down bills. It's performative theater. If, so if, her if, performative theater has been uh, you Republicans are terrible f- for being Trumpies. I kind of agree with that, but I'm not a Republican and her yeah. job is in leadership. I kind of get why people would be, um, not so stoked that that's how she's going to spend her leadership time, even though I find it on some level to be more honorable than the way that Kevin McCarthy spends his time, which is mostly doing with his yeah. with his lips in Bakersfield. So in defense of uh, Liz Cheney on this one uh, narrow point is that, as she has said, and I find this that this is mostly true. 
is that she responds honestly. This is kind of her her line when people ask her about Donald Trump, which they do incessantly because, you know, it's in the media's best interest to to create as many rifts as, as they can in the Republican Party. It's good for it's good for, uh, you know, selling papers, getting clicks and uh, good for getting rid of Donald Trump, too, and creating, you know, rifts in the party. The thing that I think that that Liz Cheney should do, this is what I would say, is sit tight. And the reason I would say sit tight is because if you look out on the landscape of American politics right now, if you look at the American economy, which is sort of teetering and tottering a little bit, and it's quite scary, and tech, tech stocks absolutely dumped today, which was a fucking nightmare, um, that pullback is happening because of um, inflationary pressure, because, you know, uh, you know, cars have gone up, I think, 10, used cars 10, 15%, which most people buy a used car. It's the, I think it's like the biggest increase uh, that we have on record. And, you know, new cars too. There's like a chip shortage. It just looks grim out there, right? And when you see things like cars, chip shortage, um, tech stocks, et cetera, if you're a free trader, you realize that, you know, free trade is, is, is the solution um, rather than the problem to a lot of these issues, right? It's not to any of the ones I just talked about, but more free trade is better for all of these things. Just period, right? You want more chips, fewer tariffs is good for that, right? So what I, the, my kind of thought about this when I was listening to her speech the other day was like, God, all this shit that I see going on around us, all the kind of, you know, like you look outside and it's like the day after or V, <laughs> like this post-apocalyptic nightmare is that this is the time that if Republicans have to, you know, you know, take this oppositional stance, this sort of fighting oppositional stance, they have to do it with the old Republican policies. You can't say we need to spend more. You can't say we need to give bigger packages to people. Because look, there's this, uh, the other huge issue here is people saying they can't find people to, um, to come and, and uh, work at their companies. Because low-wage jobs are being replaced by government checks. Now, there's a lot of debate about that, and I don't want to debate the ins and outs of it at the moment, but let's just pretend that's true, because there seems to be a lot of truth in the fact that a number of people that I've spoken to said, I make more money now. They actually had this conversation with multiple people. I make more money now than I did when I was working. So Donald Trump leaves office in this like blaze of you know ignominious stupidity, and says, let's give people more money. Let's give people bigger checks. Let's get the government more involved in healthcare at the, you know, the beginning of, you know, when he sends the bill, bill back, I always, I always quote this because I love it so much. He said it was too mean, uh, mm-hmm. the replacement for, for Obamacare. And there's a big government instinct in him. All of these big government guys, all these free traders that came in to be, to, you know, be on his economic policy team just flipped. All of those policies are the things that Republicans typically would say would alleviate the issues that we have now, right? monetary policy and we have like oh well, let's just print more money i mean who's going to pay for this this trillion dollar debts yeah it does they don't matter it doesn't matter it's transitory it's just going to come and it's going to go okay well i think people got a little cocky after 2008 2008 there is this sense from republicans there's going to be a huge um uh, inflationary effect of all of obama spending it didn't happen didn't it happen. didn't happen and everyone's like you know what it doesn't exist this stuff are those nightmares that come from right wing economists Ger- and uh, I put Gerald Ford on the cover of Reason magazine in like 2010, 2009. Yeah. 
Yeah. Saying inflation returns. I have to say that there is, I think it's that Alapundit <laughs> guy. Um, I don't know his name. It's this Alapundit guy who uh, linked uh, on, on uh, Twitter to a story about inflation. Inflation and said, welcome back, Carter. Pretty good joke, yeah, by the way. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, a lot of Carter jokes with the gas lines. Yeah, yeah the, ga- the gas lines, inflation, all this stuff. But like, so what is the Republican solution to these problems? Which What, what was the Reaganite solution, right? running in 76 and 1980. What are the solutions that the Republican Party can offer when they've been doing the exact same thing for the past four years and not sitting by quietly, actively saying, this is the direction of the party now. This is what the party should be. What does it mean to be a working class party in, in, in the Republican mind right now? I think that's not a bad idea. I think that the working class gets screwed a lot by both of the major parties. But the working class party thing for Republicans just means spending more on giving them more money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what they, that's you what they believe kids. the working class party is. Here's your money. I mean, so where do you go right now when the wheels are coming off and you have to make the counter argument when your previous four years have been the exact same argument? Well, the thing is exactly that, right? Like they can't make that counter argument. Even if they did, even if there was a, uh, sizable rump that was going to do that, the chorus of laughter would understandably be very, very loud. Right. Like we all lived through the Tea Party. You and I covered that a lot um, uh, at the time. And it did produce kind of a new generation of politicians for a while. And some it affected policy and all that. And then when push came to shove, the people who came out of that um, had to make a choice about Trump. And Mm -hmm. that choice was to get the hell out of politics or to kind of stay and make your accommodation and, you know, maybe still register a protest. I think both Rand Paul, Mike Lee, uh, Thomas Massey, for example, are people who found a way to do business with Trump while still complaining about the spending. But, you know, especially in the case of the um, of the hillbillies of, the, of that of that tri- trio. And I say that with personal uh, affection um, uh, you know, found a way to talk a lot like him, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, talking about the fake media, this, and just like adopting the vocab. Well, like that's because went. that's ultimately what Andrew Breitbart and Breitbart.com and its early iterations cared about. And they were the big drivers of the tea party and they cared about them. The media was always on their lips. Uh, you know, the, the economic stuff is sometimes a little, boring and complicated. And that was, you know, secondary. But we know, and I've said this before that, you know, Steve Bannon, who, you know, Breitbart was what made him famous in the world of politics and brought him uh, into the hands of Donald Trump. And I asked him if he thought the the politics of the Tea Party was crazy and stupid. Um, And he basically said yes. Yeah. Uh, And this is a man who rode the wave of the Tea Party to some sort of power and popularity and then ultimately into the White House. And this is a man who said to me, and I've said this before, but I, I think it's important enough to bear repeating if nobody has heard me say it before, that Steve Bannon literally said to me um, when I pushed him on it, that not only uh, his only problem with Obama's auto bailouts were they weren't big enough. He wanted more because, uh, yeah. you know, it's it's for working class people. It's for you're not bailing out the CEOs. You're bailing out the people who are, you know, union guys in, in Detroit and and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to get into this argument with you right now because it'll take a different as- place. But. The ascendant energy in the Republican Party is not in the sit and wait, get back to those principles no, 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 no. that you're advocating for no, 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 no. Liz Cheney at all. Um, it is 
the Josh Hawley, how can we break up big tech? How can we have an activist government or the, you know, the, uh, I don't know if it's uh, saying that it's Mike Lee is correct, but certainly Marco Rubio has been talking for years uh, as have been these reformo cons, as they used to call themselves of like, we need, you know, ex- expanded child tax credits and like they're going to tinker around um, the welfare uh, state to try to increase baby making and all of that. Uh, long story short, it's a real bad time to look to Washington for anything useful yeah. right now. And um, and the, that is the overwhelming sense that I've had throughout the Liz Cheney kerfuffle is that um, it's as if it is a production, um, including her portrayal over the last few days with the speech in the Washington Post op-ed, like auditioning for some new phase in a media career. It really doesn't have a lot to do of the way things are governed. Um, what's the governance that's happening right now is that we just had a $1.8 trillion American rescue plan, uh, so-called. Um, <laughs> not a lot of debate about that, by the way, in the media. Almost none. Almost none. Almost none. And the number was completely like, uh, it was, it was like, uh, smoking the bandit too. It was like a cocktail napkin yeah, yeah. with like a contraption of an elephant <laughs> and like handed it over. Oh, wait, we get, we get to have it all yeah. like immediately. Okay, yeah. cool. Because the Republicans are like talking about Amazon and, and God knows whatever, like, uh, you know, uh, drag queen story hour. Um, and, and Jeff that's Bezos, it. drag queen story hour. So, like, national politics is just not a uh, a helpful place right now. So, um, uh, so that's why Michael Moynihan needs to talk to, at the request of our uh, devoted listeners, Yael, uh, and also Chaya, whose name I will absolutely massacre at every opportunity, mostly out of anti-Semitism, uh, to talk about the pleasantness in uh, in Israel. Okay, so well, I'll say this about uh, Yael <laughs> and um, and. Uh, who was the other person? Sounded as Chaya, Chaya, okay. Chaya. Well, that's Chaya. basically like you know, uh, like Michael Jordan, like throwing me the ball. It's like that's your country. Why do you want you want to hear me talk about it? So you can laugh at me and be like, uh, he's totally wrong. Come on, he's he in, does in not fairness, know. <laughs> Yael said, "Please don't talk about it. Just make me laugh." And Chaya, and again, sorry because you know said, what. It, there said, is, um, said, you can talk about it. Just make sure I agree with all of it. Yeah. Well, you so know, there's uh, a uh, point. There's nothing more hilarious than what's going on in the Middle East right now. Um, no, I, what I've been paying attention to, because I want to talk about this uh, probably next week or maybe on the Patreon or something. And I want to get somebody, I have a couple people in mind. And I thought about this today of maybe doing a thing that everybody's always bitching about, you know, they don't give us enough time. This is the Palestinian argument is like, you, you can't hear these perspectives. Amazing to hear this on television. There was a clip from MSNBC from a, a, a kid from East Jerusalem that I think was in New York. And he was talking about these uh, settlers coming and taking over his house and throwing things at his family, et cetera. And he was on MSNBC. And by the way, then he was on CNN. And then he was on the Washington Post podcast. And then he was uh, on Vice today. And then he was on like, he, and then it's like, I, every time it's like, you know, the media's not paying attention to this. And I'm like, who you, I'm sorry, who are you guys talking to? Like, do you, are they telling you that they work at the lo- local fucking Tasty Freeze or something? They're microphones in their hands. They're on a fucking satellite hookup. They're listening to you. The, the, the pro-Israel, the, the uh, Israeli side, the same way. I mean, they're you know, reading the tea leaves of everything and every verb uh, construction of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and everybody has their biases. So there's no winning in ever talking about this stuff, by the way. So basically, yes. as this is going on, and it's a scary time, too, because there has been... 
relative, <laughs> the Middle East, calm. I mean, this is not 2006. This is not Hamas, you know, winning the election 2004, 2005. It's not the Lebanon war. It's not anything like that, right? But it is really scary and it's really hot and people are dying. And, you know, when Iron Dome is being deployed and those, you know, rockets are that are made of like, you know, shoestring and, and old uh, fucking Pringles tubes that are being shot into the air. It's like, they still kill people, by the way. People always say that. They're like, you know, they're really cr- crude rockets. I'm like, oh, no, it's totally fine because they're not made by Raytheon. It's like, if one of those lands in your living room, it's kind of sucks. So, uh, and, you know, this was actually uh, Torre today. Um, was it Torre? No, it wasn't Torre. He said something else that was crazy. Um, somebody said this today. Oh, no, it was Trevor Noah. So this is kind of the angle that wow. I've been thinking about. Trevor Racism. Noah, um, who goes on a jag about this, and, and, and I keep on wondering when I see this with Stephen Colbert and other people, I'm like, you do forget, like, you left the door open when you left the house. You forgot to put the punchline in, right? You know you're a comedy show. And it's an amazing thing when people play, like, newscaster, they start becoming a newscaster. Like, Trevor Noah, you're not a real news guy. You're a, you're a guy who plagiarizes jokes and who isn't funny and miraculously still has a show on Comedy Central, which is awful. And somehow he says, here's the thing, and I'm going to talk about Israel. And he goes and talks oh, no. about Israel. Oh, no. Oh, no. And it's always interesting from the South, South African perspective because, you know, it, the ANCs, you know, the Israelis were not on the right side of the apartheid struggle for, for a lot of it. So I, I, I get that that influences things a little bit. But he says essentially this. You know, you're stronger than them, so you know you should probably take it easy on them. Uh, that's essentially what he's saying, and this is an old argument. People were like out, outraged by this, but it's an old argument. We've heard it a million times. The guy, more people die on the Palestinian side, so therefore, the Israelis are are the the bad guys in this scenario. And again, I'm not making any judgment on this yet because I have some maybe surprising judgments on this. I'm not. I'm not. I think everybody's doing things that are kind of outrageous in this in this situation. But that argument's been around for a long time. And I don't take it to be, you know, it, it, the more people you kill, the worse you are, right? So what is one supposed to do in that situation, right? This is, this is a question. It's just a, a straight-up question. If you have, you know, air power that is, yes, partially supri- supplied by the U.S., you're flying, you know— F-16s or whatever they are, and you're doing the, you know, dropping bombs on, on uh, buildings in, um, in uh, Gaza. And I saw this other one today of a, a very well-known person saying, you know, oh, it's total nonsense that there's like, they're using human shields and blah, blah, blah. Well, the UN has actually said that they, that, that they do that. And they did say that in, I think, 2015 or 16. But, um, you know, they're blowing up a building, a targeted thing. And they're like, well, they're, they're sending rockets from in there. And they're like, Imagine that you have people cheerleading you because you're, you're, you're shooting like missiles from a school, which actually happens, um, not this time around, but, but in the past or on top of a residential building, you know, that if it's hit, you know, 99 people are going to die. And now this was never the case in the past this is the interesting new development on the, on the media end. Cause it's what's interesting for this point of this conversation is in the U S you're just going to have all these people like, you know, look, the idea that you have to be a Zionist in America, pro, pro-Israel, is, is it an idea that's changing a lot. And I wish people would acknowledge this changing. It's not, I mean, people, the, the, the administration, the Biden administration is a Nancy Pelosi are saying things that are, you know, broadly, you know, nice to the Israelis, just put it that way. 
Um, but that's not the case in, 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 you know, popular culture in, you know, the, the media elites. There's not, I mean, I think it's the opposite, actually. So you see Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang comes out with a statement and he's like, I stand with the people of Israel, et cetera. And then he has to walk it back because everyone freaks out. What about the Palestinians? What, that's a fairly new development, right? That was not the case, you know, 15 years ago. There was the people like Norman Finkelstein and these guys and Noam Chomsky, they would be very loud, kind of far left people. They would talk about this stuff. But in the actual culture now, when you say, you know, the way people deal with things that ultimately get called dumb things like cancel culture, the way how swift and how brutal the internet is. Now that's being applied to this conflict. And I'm seeing it, you're seeing it for the first time because it's really kicking up that's, now. That's actually like, uh, um, and I say this as someone who obviously never wants to talk about this willingly. Yeah. Um, but like uh, the way that the consumer experience of this awful you know, you know, people kicking each other in the face on the streets, like the, the violent gangs actually worry me on some level more than the impersonal rockets. Um, mm-hmm. like you could just sort of see the visceral hatred from people. Um, uh, but like, um, it's been a while. It's been a hot minute since we've had one of these going on. And I feel like, um, since the pandemic and since the way kind of, uh, online discourse has morphed over the years, it's like, uh, we have these new languages and new tools to describe it. So Instagram is uh, just uh, like it's a shit show. Like we learned how to use Instagram or unlearned how to use it during the George Floyd protests of last year. And now people are like, aha, I'm going to cut and paste my, you know, Instagram mm-hmm. To vision, how do we say Instagram and activism? That's not going to work out. Um, <laughs> it's a bad one, yeah. And I'm going to do it uh, for this, and it's uh, and it's a, it's jarring. Uh, it's jarring to watch, and uh, the and yeah, Andrew Yang. It's New York, New York. Um, for everything that people who are not from New York imagine, and some of it is correct about New York politics. New York is a cop town mm-hmm. and New York is a pro Israel town. Yes. It's been both of those things forever. Yes. That, that is <laughs> uh, true. As, as far as I can tell uh, for as long as those things have, have existed. So like in New York politics, you, you're not going to go that askew usually by in a moment of crisis saying, yeah, hey, come on, you know, Israel, they're our friends. Um, so yeah, it is a little bit new, but it's also, you know, it could be that Andrew Yang is overreacting to Brooklyn Twitter um, as much as anything else. I, I think, I think that, that there is a genuine shift. There's a generational 10 to 15 year shift of like the, the, the median view uh, on like the New York left about the question of Israel and also uh, uh, like of the disproportionate force. There was a piece that I saw recirculated today. I think it was from foreign policy talking about, like it's an eye for a tooth strategy. So like it's a deliberate strategy from their analysis. And I don't know if this is true or not um, of that. Like you have to disincentivize those crap rockets from coming in by disproportionately punishing them or else it's going to happen forever. That it's part of the intentional strategy. That's if that's true. And I don't know if it is, it's a fair characterization. It is probably by body count. Um, uh, whether or not it is a, a strategy, um, but that's probably harder to maintain um, in terms of. I would say it's not true. By the way, yeah, yeah, but it's okay. also. I mean, if if you think of it this way, I think of the the how modern the Israeli state and the Israeli military and the Israeli intelligence services 
Um, you know, everything that you see on the Natanz facility, all, I mean, it blew up recently as part of it because Israelis are incredibly advanced at all of this stuff is that applies with military too. Whereas, you know, it's very different when you have a group like Hamas or some of the adjunct groups like Islamic Jihad and things, they don't have a patron in the same way that say the Sandinistas had the Soviets or the Cubans, right? I mean, they're getting weapons from a lot of places, right? But they are not getting rocketry. They're not getting planes. They're not getting helicopters and things like that. So there is just going to be this disproportionate thing. You can't put away, I've got all this great stuff to, def- to defend myself, including, by the way, Iron Dome, which, you know, every time it fails, there's a, there's a, he- a headline. But, you know, Raytheon built and is an amazingly impressive piece of technology that picks these things out of the sky and blows them up in, in, in transit and, you know, what are you going to say? Like, well, you should let a few go through. I mean, because because they don't have the same advantage. It's not like, you know, they're playing with like like four players. And, you know, it's, I it's think like it's a power more, play. It's applied more to retaliatory strikes. But the thing is, that there is no such thing as retaliatory strikes. I mean, I don't buy mm-hmm. that. That's like that. That I think the language is wrong. And I know I, I can hear your eye rolls, but I think the language is wrong for this reason. Because retaliatory strikes suggest that like, Okay, that five of our guys died, and okay, let's take out 25 of theirs. It's like, no, you're going... Gaza is a very, very, very small piece of land, right? It's very compact. There's a lot of people that live there, and they're firing, you know, rockets and things out of neighborhoods and areas. The the, the pinpoint precision of some of this stuff, people are like, this is how many people died. It's, you know, if this was... 15, 20 years ago, those numbers would be triple, quadruple what they are now. I mean, it's, I think that they try to avoid uh, civilian casualties. Why? Uh, and and this is a controversial thing to say, because I don't think that, I, I'm not saying this because like they're the, the big hearted people of the Israeli Air Force. Um, I think it's just because it's a very bad look and I don't think they want that look, right? But, you know, the, too many Palestinians die in this and, and that's a problem. And the reason that I'm not saying like, well, here's where I come out on this uh, current crisis is because I'm trying to wait and see some of these, the reporting that I've seen and I've seen contradictory stuff from what's happening in East Jerusalem and, you know, what happened at Al-Aqsa Mosque and things like that, of flashbangs and all that stuff. And that seems to have happened. Um, to see what did happen. And, you know, particularly in a time now where this is not 2005, 2006, when all that stuff was kicking off and we didn't have cell phone video of everything. And now there's cell phone. I'm just waiting. Some of this stuff is coming out and it's always framed in a very particular way. And the one thing you always have to be careful of in this conflict, and this is on both sides, is that the spin is so impressive on both sides, right? The Israeli, uh, the IDF and the IAF, et cetera, they have a Twitter feed that's super sophisticated. They release, you know, very specific videos of, of targets getting hit, where obviously there's not a lot of civilian casualties or collateral damage. Um, you know, the Israelis used to criticize Palestinians and call it Pallywood, where they would go and, you know, <laughs> construct scenes for Western journalists, or so the Israelis claimed. And there's some truth to some of that. And, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm not saying that, that civilians aren't, an enormous number are. And I just don't think it's a deliberate strategy because it's not good for Israel to do that. And, it not, and by the way, if someone's saying that today, they should look back 15, 20, 30, 40, 60 years. Because if that has been the strategy, it's not working. And it hasn't worked. Because, you know, there is one man, one vote, one time for Hamas in, in, in Gaza. And you've been, you've had, you know, Hamas you know, in their covenant and in their charter, the destruction of Israel is spelled out pretty clearly. 
And that is who is, you know, sitting right there across from Sederoth. You know, I mean, I think everybody sucks in this situation so far, but I'm waiting to see who who's, who sucks more. But I think that the one thing I will say um, that I actually have an opinion on is that to what you were talking about, everyone's applying their own politics in America, their American politics to um, Israeli politics. And my favorite one was uh, Mark Lamont Hill, who said, you know, standing with my Af- Afro-Palestinian brothers in East Jerusalem. There is a community of Afro-Palestinians, by the way. There are like there? three, four hundred of them. But it's just like, it that doesn't even matter. It's like that. It's such a great reflection of what happens when identity is everything. And then like, OK, so let me do that on, you know, it, it would, for me, it would be like. You know, there was, there was a war or something, you know, uh, uh, Georgia versus, uh, you know, Abkhazia and the Russian. I'm like, uh, this is a tragedy, but I'm really hoping those six Americans that live there are doing OK. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't I mean, come on. I mean, let's let's it's ridiculous. But uh, but anyway, a complicated situation and I will have more on it. And what I wanted to do um, and maybe do this on Patreon is I want to get somebody who uh, is from um, a very, very pro-Palestinian perspective, as we've done with Venezuela, actually, on this show, um, because I was on the other side of that person. And uh, one of our, uh, you know, friends who's, a, who's quite a Zionist and, you know, a rock-ribbed uh, defender of Bibi Netanyahu. And I uh, get them not on at the same time. I don't think that's useful, by the way. Because I don't want to... Unless we can get them to make out. Well, that would be like a Brezhnev and uh, Honecker thing. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I just... It, it's like, particularly if you're not in the same room, and it becomes the CNN hit where guys are screaming over each other. But one at a time, and to talk to talk to uh, two people from both sides to see um, what they're thinking about this and, and who makes more sense. So if you're, if well, you're interested in that, I, I, have some, I have some people for both. For both sides. Let's keep in mind... Michael and yeah. everybody writ large that a lot of action going on here. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking from a room here that has four chairs. Yeah. It's, I mean, we can get the, I can, I can think of pro Israel people who I like and uh, who I think are smart in New York. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the kind of more pro Palestinian sign are mostly in DC. And I'm thinking about my uh, friends um, who's amazingly smart guy, Hussein Abish, um, who, oh, yeah. uh, is who used to be my mortal enemy um, and we became friends and that's a different, that's like a, an episode of, um, of uh, this American life or something, you know, act one, act three, act one. So Michael uh, meets Hussein a bitch and he's a propensity next But yeah, but Hussein like gets a lot of shit from, from like the hardcore guys. But I think, I think Hussein is um, um, very, very bright, very much not on the side of uh, the Israeli government in this, uh, in this, in this situation. Uh, but he's also reasonable and he's also sensible and, um, and, uh, not, he is not colored by religious zealotry. And that is something that I wouldn't want on, on either side. I don't want uh, one of these kind of messianic, um, settler types who says, you know, uh, uh, you know, Judea and Samaria is all ours or somebody who says from the river to the sea, the Palestine must be free. These people are all too, too nuts, but I'd like to talk about them with sensible people. So. Um, aspirational yeah should we uh let's, should we uh bust out let's of bounce. here let's bounce, bounce? Uh, again a reminder to everyone miami that we're recording this on wednesday night it'll be released hopefully on thursday tomorrow, yeah. and um around that thursday or friday no later than friday is our uh intended uh promise um uh, we'll release new details about the miami show 
parentheses. Um, uh, that's happening on June 3rd. Yes. So it's the Patreon folks who are going to hear about it first. If you so haven't subscribed you to that, to get a ticket before anyone else. Subscribe <laughs> to Patreon. <laughs> they, they, they turn into also, Michael McDonald at the end. <laughs> um, now we all also have like six, we've got like uh 67 episodes up there too we like, do uh, 68 they're, actually. they're pretty good uh well pretty 68 good. and there's like there's a couple other stray ones so i think it's about 70 extra episodes over there which are by the way we, do. we don't fucking cheat you we don't do like the long one for the no. the cheap people who just don't think everything's free um we do two hour episodes there too and if you think they're too fucking long just listen to the first half and you know you know give the rest of the dog and have uh and we we uh, read a whole bunch of listener mail yeah, yeah. and that's the fascinating phenomenon it's always so. a bunch of fucking lunatics but uh we love you guys yeah. uh so yeah plan on that we're gonna do two shows um and i keep on announcing that because we were kind of in the middle about that and i'm gonna force it by doing a seven nice. and a nine show or a seven thirty nine thirty show or something like that. Um, uh, because we have a couple of different uh, things we want to do and, uh, it's fun. And that's, we did one live show before. Um, and it was such a great success over at the comedy cellar. We had Michael Barbaro as our, our guest and, uh, uh, uh Jody Avergan too, who's uh, fantastic. And, um, uh, that was a while ago and we actually were planning to do more shows and then the pandemic struck. So Florida is open. We're starting there. And if your state is open, we're looking at you, Texas. Maybe we'll come to you next. Yep. So. All, right. All right. What do we do? Go by? Bye. Bye-bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. <laughs>